This episode of Why I Joined is brought to you by the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification USA. Their mission is to empower people through the worldview offered by the Divine Principle to create God-centered families. And the answer that popped out of my mind, it was so revelatory because you know how you say it and then you realize it. And um, I want I want to bring back innocence and sweetness into the world through music. Today, we're joined by Joe Young. Born and raised in Northern California, he decided to become a professional musician at the age of 15. Four years later, he moved to New York City to pursue a career in jazz guitar and at 22 began playing in bands and touring. Joe was born into the unification movement and returned after years of being distant at the age of 24. He joined the National Music Ministry where his passion shifted from playing guitar to writing songs. Almost a decade later, Joe and his wife began pastoring the local unification church in South Florida. What they planned to be a one-year commitment turned into five. During that time, Joe had many insights, including a newfound love and spiritual connection to Jesus. Joe's passion shifted yet again to ministry, preaching, and worship music. Joe is currently on a new endeavor of teaching the Bible and the Divine Principle online. I'm Nancy Jubb. And I'm Sungmi Holdus. And this is Why I Joined. All right, Joe. Thanks so much for joining us, and we're so excited to hear your story. Wow, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is uh, really exciting, and, um, you know, I'm honored. And, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to have a moment in the day where we can speak and breathe a little more easily you know life is so fast-paced and i'm i love being able to just mute my phone and not look at it for a couple hours and just talk with you guys and it's this is refreshing already <laughs> well we're glad you're not stressed out you know <laughs> this is a relaxing experience oh yes. yeah yeah definitely <laughs> awesome well, Joe, so you were born into the unification movement, and can you tell us a particular memory that sums up your experience of growing up in the church? Yeah, um, you know, I've, I've brought this up a few times with people, and I get these two reactions. Um, one is a sense of fondness to this memory, and the other, when I've shared it with other people, they have a sense of, oh God, I hated that, you know, so like... <laughs> Um, my, something that just always burns in my mind is, um, pledge service growing up. Uh, we were, you know, back in those days, it was Sunday morning, I believe. And then it was every eight days, you know, um, but there was a time when it was Sunday morning at 5 a.m., I believe. And all of us would get, uh, together in the living room, light a couple candles and do pledge service. And, um, you know, as a kid being dragged out of bed at 5 a.m., that's not a pleasant memory necessarily. That's not a pleasant, I would say it's not a pleasant experience, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's amazing how time changes things. I, I'm just always moved, even to right now, that um, I grew up in a family that prayed for me and, and prayed that my family would be together, loving each other and have a purpose and how and inviting God in and I felt God watching me my whole life and I wonder if it wasn't because my parents prayed um for for the for us and so I I have this this just image of pledge service is just really 
kind of like the the image I hold on to to um, symbolize where I come from and who I am. Now I've told some people that story, and they're like, "Oh, I hated it." But actually, my but my dad and mom actually tried to make it fun because they knew the kids hated it, so they would bring <laughs> like treats, and then we'd have like a little cake, and then we'd like make it like a little party. So um, we try. Oh, wow. We had- I wish that was my experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Your parents did it right. They they made a party, so we had a seer. You know, we got and did our prayer and pledge. I just love it. You know, pledging and it's refreshing. Um, you know, a sense of who you are and what you're here on earth to do. So I, I just uh, I have a very fond memory of that. To me, that sums it up more than any other particular memory. Can you describe pledge service? Yeah. So pledge service five a.m. Um, in the old days. And, uh, you know, you get, you know, I, my memory might even be wrong. So if I get this wrong, uh, you know, full disclaimer, I'm not claiming that I have a perfectly accurate memory, but I remember that we would all gather as a family, we would line up in a line and we would, um, face the altar of our living room, a little fireplace. And above it were candles, a picture of uh, Reverend and Mrs. Moon, who we affectionately call true parents and a picture of Jesus. Um, we always had uh, Jesus there, right in the right there in the middle, and so we would then bow um, to that to the altar, sort of uh, as you know that we felt that they were God's representatives, bringing us uh, the Word, bringing us God's love <clears throat> through their teachings and life and example. And that bow comes from I, I'm probably you know you guys probably know, but. That bow comes is comes a little bit. It's a surprise to like a Western person such as myself, but it comes from the Korean um, expression of respect culturally, and so I I find that um, just little things like that have stuck with me too. You know what what kid growing up in regular suburba suburbia next to a Walmart in a field of cows, which I grew up in. <laughs> What kid was actually in their living room and Sunday mornings bowing in the Korean tradition, you know, to to Jesus? Yeah. As a half Korean person, I can affirm that. Yeah, it's like a very common cultural practice to bow to your elders. Okay. You bow out of respect. It, it's a it's a sign of respect. Yeah. Right. I and I I I think it's beautiful. I think all cultures have something to offer that's that's something beautiful to hold on to. But the the other side of that coin, by the way, is I do I have preached that I think all cultures have something to leave behind as well, because every culture has been developed in a uh, not so perfect world. But mm. <clears throat> um, I think that's a beautiful thing. Then after the bow, we would um, read down these eight points of um, basically a pledge uh, that we would read in unison. And the pledge would, um, at one point, it was in Korean. Oh, that's right. We made a competition of who could memorize it first in our family. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious, yeah. And um, that's good, actually. Um, Then it was English. And, um, you know, you're pledging to be a family centered on true love. You're pledging to be people that... Um, basically grow spiritually, right? That you, that you become a, this kind of a developed uh, champion of the heart. Uh, you know, you've developed different realms of your heart and that you, you, every week you're pledging to go on that 
kind of inner journey of the soul and the heart. And that's, um, if you really think about it, that's, that's kind of deep for a f- seven-year-old kid, <laughs> you know. That, that's kind of big. That's... Um, that was yeah that's the more i teach and and write worship songs and all this um the more i think about that and go whoa that was something <laughs> um then after we read the pledge um i guess i believe we did a prayer um and then i maybe my mom and dad would pray and um there might have been a little more to it than that but then i just remember the the cake and the party yeah the good stuff (laughs) yeah we would do like a big uh you know breakfast that would my dad's one meal he could cook was breakfast he'd make like waffles or you know gravy and biscuits because he's southern and yeah we would look forward to that you know it's like okay all right is pledge over yet (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but yeah that memory of being together as a family uh, my sister and I were reflecting on this and, you know, we're like, we're really, we really appreciate that we were a spiritual family, you know, together. And that, yeah, despite everything you think about it at the time, oh, it's too early. This is boring. You know, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, this is like over my head. It's, it's a fond memory now as adults. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the, I guess you could call it a tradition or ritual that I think should be that I would want to keep for my family. Um, I would love for my daughter to grow up and then later in her adult life have just these distant, Oh, memories of, wow, dad and mom were, were really praying over me. You know, that's, I want her to have that. Yeah. So that's one, that's one thing I've been honing in on quite a bit. How old are your children? Oh, I only have one uh, daughter. Um, her name is Alexandra, and she's three and a half. Oh, that's cute age. Oh, that's yeah. a great it age. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Learning and getting witty and, you know, speaking with us. And, oh, man, it's fun. Um, so you talked about passing on traditions to her. I mean, she's still quite young, but are there traditions that you already practice with her? Um, just some small ones. Um I wanted her to know about Jesus and God and uh, true parents. As you know, that's Reverend Moon, Mrs. Moon. Um, And what I can testify that they've done for my life. So I I want her to know that. Um, And that's kind of a way that I can see passing it on without saying, uh, you better do this or you should do this or else you're going straight to the bottom of hell you know, <laughs> or some craziness <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just know your dad feels that, uh, he, he really owes his life to, to ha- you know, to God and, and Jesus and true parents because of what they did and what they taught me. Just know that, you know, and I'm hoping that that helps. So we, we pray before we eat. Um, and that's a, that was a conscious decision and um, it's it's weird for me because for many, many years, I didn't pray before a meal. I just felt like, I don't know. I mean, full full honesty, I just feel praying is awkward. It just feels awkward <laughs> to pray out loud anywhere. 
And I've decided mentally, I've just decided I'm going to lean into that discomfort and just do it. <clears throat> because again, I want, I want my daughter to have some visible expressions that she can recall later in life that we were, we were thinking about God. If you don't do, if you don't pray out loud, how does she know we're ever thinking about God ever? So I've decided a couple of things. I've, I'm like, we're going to pray at the mealtime, even if it's awkward or I don't feel like doing it. <clears throat> and the other one is going to be, um, I, I really want to bring back like a weekly pledge or something like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're probably going to institute that fairly soon. And at Christmas time, I, I put a little picture in front of her on her snack table and I explained uh, who Jesus was. And, you know, she was two and a half, right? Or two, two and th- almost three at Christmas. And so I was like, how do you explain Jesus to a two-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the inspiration kind of hit me. And I and my wife and I were just sitting there. And I, I said, Jesus? So, Alex, this is Jesus. And she says, Jesus. And I said, uh, Jesus is the man who loved the world the most. He had the most love in his heart out of any person that ever lived. And then I started crying. <laughs> I started crying. And I was like, this is, this is, oh man, this is intense. <laughs> That's beautiful, though. That's so beautiful to just express your heart so honestly, like in front of your kids, you know, to let them see that raw emotion, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, what's going on? I'm turning into a <laughs> holy roller here. I'm crying. And, uh, <laughs> oh, man. Then we say, but Your daughter will keep those memories for sure. Yeah. Maybe not from two and a half, but yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> keep That's, having them. Yeah. In my family, we always um, sang happy birthday to Jesus on, on Christmas. So that's another little thing. Uh, to answer this question, I guess the long-winded question, uh, the answer of traditions, that's something I'd like to do. Every year we sing happy birthday to Jesus, though I do feel pretty convinced that uh, December 25th is not his actual birthday, most likely. <laughs> um, but yeah. I'm, it's just whatever. We're, I think it's fine to just... I think he gets the sentiment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would feel okay if, like, you know, people got my birth date wrong, but sincerely saying happy birthday to me. So that's okay. Anyway. No, that's that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it sounds like your family had a really profound impact on what you're trying to pass on to your, to your own, you know, to your own kids. And, you know, in your, in your intro, we talked a little bit about um, how your ambition in life was to be a musician, you even moved to New York City, and were living the dream, and kind of had taken a step back from, you know, being directly involved in the church. And can you talk a bit about that time and what brought you back? Yeah, so I, I was a pretty fiery uh, still have that side of me somewhere, but it's, I, I was a pretty feisty teenager. Like I was a very, I was a rebel without a cause kind of thing. <laughs> and I felt at, in my teenage years, I felt that the church um, groups that I was around were not my speed. I, I just didn't feel very included. Um, I have a particular memory that always just makes me feel a little, ugh. 
you know, where I, you know, I, I kind of found out through the grapevine that um, at some small group or some youth camp or something that there was a, there was a lot of discussion about me, but I wasn't there. And, um, oh, and I no. was like, oh. everybody was kind of assessing or critiquing that I wasn't spiritual enough or uh, whatever it was. Right. I don't even remember the detail so much, but I remember feeling like, Oh, this sucks. Like I'm not in this group. So I, I was actually very separatist. I was very like, get, I'm getting out of here. Um, not that I thought I was less spiritual or anything, but I, I was thinking, I don't want to be in this social club, you know? Um, and music was a, was like a, a social circle all by itself. Um, so I think music kind of saved me in a way, you know, how a lot of people, they might go away from their religious upbringing, but then where do they go to? Well, then they, what do they do from there? Right. Um, hang out in the back alleys at clubs and, and make fake IDs and, and what, like, (laughs) where do you go after you've left your, this, oh, I don't want to be part of the clique of the, the goody two shoe club over here. Where do I go? Well, for me, yes, I criticized all these people of being goody two shoes and all this. And, but I went over to, well, I'm just going to be a, the best musician I can be. And then I found a, an entire world of people that surrounded me and it, it gave me an identity, right? It gives you a, a place in the world. Oh, who I, who am I? I'm, I'm a musician and I have a role. So that was, I think that kind of saved me in a sense. Um, so that was cool. And my music family was kind of like my new family. <laughs> um, and uh, at one point it was so bad because I actually I was blessed at a very young age. Um, again, I was kind of a rebel. My parents didn't necessarily think it was a great idea, but I was like, I'm going to do this. So, so ver- Joe, when you say blessed, do you mean blessed in marriage? Yeah, blessed in marriage. Yeah, I went to, sorry, yeah, thanks for clarifying. Um, I went to a blessing ceremony while still a teenager. So... Um, and I was like, well, I'm going to take me, I'm, I'm an adult, I can do it. And I moved over to New York City and um, gave it my best shot. Um, and, you know, coming off the heels of that relationship not working, that was a dark time. And I remember, uh, you know, I could barely uh, pay rent and I didn't know what I was doing. I think I got fired from Starbucks right when I broke my blessing. Oh man. Um, so oh, that, that was like, I was just like, gosh, this, I am, I'm a loser. This is not working. you like, and, and then I remember, um, some musicians in bands that I was with, um, buying, like helping pay my rent or buying me groceries and stuff. So actually I had a little family in this music world and that was really sweet. Um, and how I returned to not, feeling separated out from the you know and i should make an asterisk here though this whole time even when i moved to new york where did i live i lived in a church center because i didn't know anybody (laughs) in new york so i went to it i went to a church center and so in my mind i was like okay i don't like the the california kids so much right now um i hope they don't take offense if any of them are listening (laughs) 
Um, but back then I didn't, you know, I thought, well, I didn't like these folks too much or I don't, and, but I went to New York thinking this is different group. And I went to the Bronx, uh, pretty, pretty interesting <laughs> textured <laughs> gritty area of the world. Um, and I stayed with, um, the, the, the church center there and they really took me in and cared for me. And, um, I have very fond memories of that church center. And so, there I was doing church services, playing music at their their services, and stuff like that. Um, so I'm sorry that's a little long winded, but where it, where it all came back was um, uh, there was a national music ministry that had started from a from a change of leadership in our church, which I was not aware of. I wasn't trying to keep track. And then my uh, parents called me up and said, "Hey, Joe, the new." church ministry is like really music centric maybe you could go in there and play for them and i was like nah i'm too busy <laughs> <laughs> and uh i'm too busy doing my other things i think at that time i had a middle school teaching job at a, at a teaching music at a private school and i was touring with somebody and i was it was like no i'm way too busy um and then they kind of convinced me just give it a try. Like, we just want you to see like one church service, you know? So long story short, I saw one service and I thought, wow, it's pretty good. That's pretty impressive. So I, I, I went to um, one of my dear friends, uh, Reverend Joshua Cotter, who some, some listeners may know, maybe not. And, um, said, Hey Josh, maybe I can sub into the band when you're, when somebody calls out sick or something, you know? And that didn't like last very long. All of a sudden, just stepping in for one time, they were like, oh, you should come back every week, you know? And so it slowly trickled. And I felt that that ministry at that time, though those of us who are familiar might think there was a lot of good and a lot of, you know, um, maybe some turmoil that came from after it, 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 it closed up and... I felt that that ministry did a lot for me um, because it felt like a, a place that was a little like the, wel the the arms were opened up a little wider. Like there was a place to be welcomed back. And I think our, the church in the 80s and 90s wasn't as open to that feeling of welcoming back someone even if they, you know, previously ventured off. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that, definitely. So I was like, oh gosh, I'm not really, I'm still not really a churchy guy, but I'll play uh, the music if I'm helping a little bit, you know, <laughs> this kind of thing. <laughs> and then eventually everybody just like won me over, like everything that was going on and the people. And I I was just so uh, impressed with all the people, you know, David Eaton, Jaga Gavin, Dave Hunter, Heather Talheimer, all these great people I was working with and um, even to to get to know um, Injun and um, others um, just was wow. Like it was it was kind of that was kind of the moment for me of like, OK, I guess I am this. I really am this. I just had some bad years. And what was it about the people you were working with, relating with that won you over? Um, good question. I guess it's the feeling of like um acceptance and grace and actually i'm gonna give a talk later tonight about this 
because grace is uh, something that is built really deeply into Christian thought, but I don't know if in my upbringing um, in our church we didn't harp on that so much. Like it was more like don't mess up because you're supposed to be the manifestation <laughs> of a tr of this pure lineage and pure greatness that God's been hoping for for a long time. So don't mess it up, please. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if yeah. any of us got the please, but that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if anybody, I don't know. Did any of our parents say please? I don't even think so. It was a, it was a mandate, uh, mm -hmm. but, but I don't blame the parents because they were, it was pressure all the way from every, uh, up above them and up above them. And I get it. It was a serious time. But um, the evolution that I think that changed for me was noticing, oh, I think our, our movement has now balanced in grace. Mm -hmm. It's not just urgency. Yeah. It's not just, you know, the, the pressure of the provenance. It's also grace. Um, yeah. And we need to have both, I think. So, yeah, yeah that was really moving and exciting to me. No, that's a powerful point. Um, yeah, we have this tendency to think of anything that takes time for us to grow, which is ironic because our, our entire philosophy is about growing your heart, growing your spirit, that you need the hundred years on earth to, you know, battle it out and, you know, with yourself and become this, you know, perfected in heart person. But how we grew up was um, there was no room for failure you know, and what is failure, you know, and is, and I think now we're, we're evaluating that and taking a step back mm -hmm. and saying, no, failure is actually part of the process. It's okay. You know, you will have stumbling blocks. There will be things that happen to you that you have no control over, um, especially other people. Right. <laughs> you, know? you know, um, yeah. that reminds me, you know, as I was learning how to be a preacher and all this, I started reaching out to mentors and stuff. And I've heard some amazing quotes from Reverend Moon that weren't, I've never heard before. And one of them was, um, uh, Reverend Moons has a leaders meeting and he says, he, he asked the crowd who here is making mistakes. And no, and, and no one raises their hand because because they're like, no, I don't want my head chopped off. Yeah. So it's a setup, right? So no one answers, and um, <laughs> it's a setup. And then he said, "Huh? Either you're lying or you're not trying hard enough." Oh. He's like, and then wow. the he follows it up by saying, "You should be making at least." Uh, 10 mistakes a day. Hmm. So yeah, I think that didn't get passed on to our parents that when we say don't fail, we mean something that that doesn't mean just don't make mistakes, right? Or yeah. don't slip up. Yeah. That's, that was a key difference um, in in like when, when I started learning this, I, I started retroactively realizing, okay, the way we were taught and and it reminds me of that. Uh, there's a great quote. I don't even know who says it. It might be Richard Nixon or somebody. But <laughs> um, a man is not finished when he is defeated. A man is finished when he quits. Mm, hmm. I love that. Yeah. 
I mean, it's interesting too. I mean, just, <clears throat> and Sungmi and I talk at length about this <laughs> just casually all the time, but even the way that our movement, you know, came out of post-war Korea, you know, by these men who did military service and, you know, like just structurally, there's so much like military influence and manly manness and yeah, that whole don't fail, you know, kind of like victory and smash Satan and <laughs> you know all of that stuff. But like, I don't know. I mean, for me, at least like, you know, the essence of of divine principle and what we, you know, the teachings and all of these things and even Reverend Moon and the life that he lived, it's, it's about the love of God, right? And how can you, how can you not experience grace or, or take that into consideration when you really like experience that love, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just that our movement is so new. I think people forget that. Totally. Like we're in, we're, <laughs> We're in our infancy. We haven't had hundreds or thousands of years to develop and tweak things. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's easy to get a little overly critical of the ways that the movement didn't nail it. Yeah. Um, but that's uh, – anyway, those were big for me, like the, the grace thing and d redefining what failure is. And um, that, that was cool. Those are big moments. Those are those things have really become more articulate and in, in just my recent years now. That that wasn't really all going through my mind at twenty five years old. I mean, you pastored a unification church community in Florida uh, along with your wife, and you talk about developing this deeper heart. You know, you had the seed planted as a kid of you know saying happy birthday to Jesus and. Um, you know, having this personal connection with Jesus and, and with, you know, true parents as well with Reverend and Mrs. Moon to some degree, but during pastoring, something clicked for you, you know, something deepened. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a big, that's, that was serious for me. I, I started pastoring as, uh, with my wife as just a, an attempt to help out the local community, do it for a year. If we can help you know, just kind of bridge the little gap where they don't have a, a leader right now kind of thing. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's like, hey, it's Easter Sunday next week. What are you going to say, Pastor Joe? And then I'm like, <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> you know, I'm like, there's all this pressure. And I'm like, people are like, well, I'm bringing my whole family from out there. You know, they're... <laughs> <laughs> They're guests, right? People that don't know the movement. All of a sudden, I see like grandmas and aunts and cousins and all these people in the room. And I'm like, I have to represent what we teach about Easter. So, that, <laughs> no so, pressure. <laughs> no, yeah, there was pressure. And I was like, crapping myself. And I thought, I got to dig in. And I really wanted to write sermons that were really meaningful and felt it felt like substantial i didn't want to just say like uh like like a a reiteration of a theological point and um i learned this sort of little mechanism as a songwriter one of my songwriting mentors told me this uh when you're writing a song always chase the goosebumps <laughs> and um oh. and the it's kind of a interesting phrase 
um, but it it means if you're writing something and you don't feel the goosebumps, keep at it, tweak it, change it. Maybe it could be better, and you'll know when you're there when you get that tingle, when you get that goosebumps. Hmm. So I was kind of taking that same approach to sermon writing. Okay, God is love and this and this, but if I wasn't feeling the goosebumps, I pushed myself harder to figure out what in this gives me the goosebumps. And that approach really revealed so many things about our teaching that I didn't realize were there. Like that the profound nature of the teaching really came alive for me. Wow. Um, under that pressure of I'm going to chase these goosebumps. I'm going to find what it is about this teaching that means. And then all of a sudden I just felt like just random <laughs> like obsession with reading the New Testament. <laughs> I just like, yes. I was reading the New Testament just every single day, one in the morning, two in the morning, all night, just reading, reading, reading New Testament. And I was really digging into trying to connect to Jesus. And uh, don't know why, don't know why I had that in, uh, inclination. But that brought that just brings to life everything we teach if you do that for a little while and then you come back to what unification thought and divine principle and unificationism is about it just it was like blowing my mind i was like holy crow nothing we teach is misaligned from jesus it's absolutely a continuation in every way from what jesus was working for teaching about trying to accomplish everything so i just started to make this realization you know like we're not like christianity light we're not like oh we're a little bit christian but we're a little <laughs> right and you know yes. you know this struggle because yeah. i have the struggle to this day i have this struggle how do you define ourselves mm -hmm. right it's, we're not like, oh, we're a little bit Christian, but we're actually kind of like Korean and Oriental. <laughs> and, you yep. know, it's, it's kind of, yep. you know yep. the struggle, right? Yep. It's a little bit like a philosophy. A worldview. It's a worldview. <laughs> it's a, it's a, pe it's a, it's a, a peace movement. movement. Yeah. yeah, what is it? So new elements of this definition came to life. I'm like, dude, we're like super Christians, basically. Like, we're not like left of center. We're not like Christian light. We're like Christian concentrate. Like, Christ more Christian than Christian. Like, this is super Jesus on steroids, you know? <laughs> wow. It sounds very blasphemous, but you know what I mean. Like, because Christians, I love them, and I think, I, one of my missions in life is to connect to all Christians, but there's gaps in this New Testament. There's what mm. is he praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane? Mm. That, that question is not ever answered. Because uh, for those who may not be familiar with the story or whatever, he's asking God to let the way of the cross pass from him to to he's addressing a different alternate destiny yeah. what the heck is he doing that for if you believe in the mainline christianity which is that jesus existed before time did right he's absolutely one with god because he is god why is he praying for a different destiny mm, right yeah and 
I know I, I don't want to harp on Christianity with a critical eye. I love what Christianity has done for this world in the last 2,000 years. It's been incredible. We'd be in a dark age without Christianity and without Christians and without Jesus. But that question is, is so key and central to what we teach because when you study the divine principle, then it kind of shares, guys— there's an, a primary destiny that God wants, and there's a secondary consequential destiny. If the, peop- if the people don't believe and don't have faith, there's a consequential second destiny of the cross. Hmm. And that actually Jesus was addressing God and saying, God, will you please let me try a little longer to fulfill the primary destiny? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of my, (laughs) oh God, one of my mentors says, that's where, see, if you really want to pray and dig into this, where you're going to find Reverend Moon is kneeling down next to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hmm. Nobody understood. If you think about this Garden of Gethsemane thing, it blows my mind. All the martyrs, all the saints, all the preachers, all the missionaries and pioneers throughout history, no one understood this Garden of Gethsemane prayer until one man, Reverend Moon. So I, I just view our teaching as this tunnel or this window into that garden and to really sympathize and, and put our arms around Jesus and say, we will help you complete and get that destiny fulfilled. That's a true partnership with God. (laughs) Yeah, that's so beautiful. I love, yeah, I love the way that you express that. I mean, it's interesting because like hearing you talk about like really digging deep into really trying to understand who Jesus was and, and what that me the impact of that on your faith in a sense is so, um, it's really fascinating to me because I think that as unificationists, we often kind of like, oh, we already know better than Christians or, or we are, we already have like a leveled up truth or, or, you know, this kind of presumptuous, uh, standpoint. And I'm sure some of that comes from like being, uh, being a faith that comes out of East Asia where there's not a strong Christian foundation in a sense. Um, and so it's hard to relate. And, and yet like hearing you talk about this journey that you've been walking, it's like, it's like the, the path to the heart of it like really feeling it, like you were saying, like the goosebumps has just brought it to life in in a totally different way for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I see us not as leveled up or leveled like, well, yeah, we're gonna, we're better because we're theologically more. Because actually, remember, this is such an important point we have to insert before, you know, it can be misconstrued. You can have a lesser doctrine, but live it more fully. 
and you will go to a much better place spiritually than somebody with a much superior doctrine who does not live it. Totally. So the doctrine doesn't do it for you. So I'm just saying I want to use the doctrine to lift me up and motivate me to do better and be a better person. And I think our our teaching lifts Jesus up so high. It's not to say that, because here's another part of that, that consequential destiny, the cross. That's not a failure because it's it's simply a second providence, right? It's a second plan mm-hmm. that God put in place. There's evidence of that in the Bible that he was kind of warning about it. Like, mm. look, if, it, there's no, if there's no faith, this other thing's going to mm-hmm. happen. Right. And Satan wanted to use the cross as a way to not just capture Jesus's body, but he wanted it to be so humiliating, so deeply painful in the sense of betrayal by his own people and his own disciples that he was hoping, Satan was hoping, that if he could betray Jesus and hurt Jesus so hard that Jesus himself would fall off the path of perfection, that Jesus would hold some kind of grudge, that Jesus would hold, you know, some resentment, some pain in his heart. That's actually what Satan was really after. He was after the physical body, but he wanted to capture Jesus's mind and heart. And the incredible thing is Jesus went through that path and uh, did not budge. Actually, that was my Easter sermon. I said, Jesus is the most stubborn man in human history. (laughs) (laughs) Because he refused he refused to let hatred into his heart. Yeah. And so Satan was just absolutely shocked when Jesus died, a perfected man. That was a victory, mm-hmm. not a failure. Hmm. That was a victory, which is what allowed Jesus to come back as a resurrected. Satan had no idea that what you're going to resurrect and spiritually walk around and inspire everyone. That was not part of Satan's plan. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a victory. We have to remember Jesus that way. And that's the truth of it. Um, So when I, when I look at that, I, I just, I just can't believe um, I, I just, I'm so honored and, and privileged to be a person that can follow Jesus, but with the teachings of Reverend Moon to augment it and make the Bible perfectly clear, I'm I'm so I'm so lucky. I mean, this is amazing. Yeah, it's sad that we have this reputation um, from some of the Christian community that we think Jesus failed. Mm. That's pretty common criticism yeah. of our theology. Jesus. Failing would have been him running away from the cross. Right. Yeah. Because God was saying, sorry, plan A is over. You have to do plan B. Jesus could have ran away. I mean, I mean, we we have fugitives, right? You can run over. <laughs> he, could, he could have just, he was a carpenter. He'd be pretty useful somewhere else. <laughs> you know, he could have just went off to Siberia or China or wherever and lived his life and came back in 40 years and nobody would recognize him. That would have been a failure. Yeah. Jesus walked into the humiliation and pain of the cross willingly and lovingly. 
Mm-hmm. And that, so that was not a failure in my book. That, that's the victory. Yeah, I think that's an important point to emphasize, you know, that um, I think someone else put it to me this, like, we don't think Jesus failed. We love Jesus the most because we really understand what he did. You know, it's, yeah, we understand the sacrifice and the heart it took for him and the conviction he had to have to make the choice. I'll say that with a caveat that when we take the time to really connect deep, you know, <laughs> that's the <laughs> point, right? Because there, there are definitely those out there who haven't yet discovered that in a, mm. in a more visceral kind of way, like really feeling it, I think. I, I would articulate it that you can, we can love Jesus so incredibly much from a Christian standpoint, like to the point where you're just nothing but Jesus all the time. But that that love stays in the realm of a child being grateful mm-hmm. for what the parent did. But there are one day must come when the child has to grow up and become a parent themselves, right? And become somebody that says, thank you so much for what you did to raise me. I'm going to take on from here. I'll take I'll take the torch and hold yeah. it with you and I'll carry it forward down the field. It's not about more love, it's about a different kind of love. The kind of love that says I am I want to grow up and be like you and actually be a be a parent. So there's really no there's really not a parental feeling in in the Christian tradition of loving Jesus is more like a child, right? You saved me, you, you liberated me and it's very powerful and it should never be minimized. But at some, but at some point, I think this, this idea that Reverend Moon brings forward transforms that gratefulness to, uh, uh, some other feelings of determination of other feelings of let me you know, um, let me be your partner. Let, let, Mm. I may not, I might not be up to your standard, but it's that feeling of maturing and taking ownership of this world and yourself and everything else. Yeah. I love like, I, I really love that about our community in a sense that the people who are really committed to, to what we believe feel this deep sense of like, seeing God look at the world and and seeing his children suffering, like as a parent, how can you not suffer knowing that, you know, your children are going through so much? And, um, and, and of course that doesn't mean God's not trying to do the, you know, everything possible to help them in every way. Right. But to see that suffering is so painful and, and yet for us as a community to stand up together saying, let me comfort you. Like I, you know, like I, I want to, yeah, like taking that gratitude to the next level of like, I want to comfort you because of everything that you've done for me. Um, I love that about our community. Yeah. 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 That's, it's, it, I was just thinking the other day, it, it almost lifts God up higher. I mean, how can you get higher than God? But it almost <laughs> lifts God up higher because he's no longer, oh, you know, he's got the plan figured out and 
you know, he really loves you. And it's like, well, then why is there suffering? We don't know, but he does love you. <laughs> we, we don't know, but he does love you and he does have a plan. Just, just believe. It's like, wait, is he, is he waiting around? Why did he wait around 4,000 years to send Jesus? Just send Jesus right away. Come on. Mm. What's he doing? Mm-hmm. Well, when you see uh, through the principle that there was a reason that Jesus came as absolutely soon as, as God could possibly send it. And like, you know, Reverend Moon says, mm-hmm. God's love is a straight line. It goes in the absolute, mm. he wastes no time. He, then you realize God is a suffering God. He's not patiently just waiting the providence out. He's desperately <laughs> searching for his children every day with this urgency of a, of a parent who's lost his child. That, that amplifies the love of God, actually, for me. Wow. Yeah, I can, you know, you're, you're a parent now, and I guess your perspective has shifted, you know, having a young daughter and, and raising her. Um, You know, how has that shifted your spiritual, you know, what's changed in your spiritual journey, you know, becoming a husband and, and a father? Oh, man. That's, that's (laughs) like, wow. It's like, it's, uh, somebody said recently, I think it was, I don't know who, Jordan Peterson, um, who said, uh, you're not really an adult till you have kids. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. And, and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of true. Like once you feel the weight of, oh, crap, I'm responsible for this person. <laughs> you know. um, but it has taught me so much about... Um, it has taught me so much about what I think about God. It has revealed, it's really evolved. For instance, I, I realized something like this, there's a contentious point of, of, about grace in our, um, in Christian circles too. Well, if God really loves me, then I can do whatever I want and he'll forgive me. Mm. Right. So then, well, you're being judgmental. Don't judge me because God's not judging me because I am good the way I am because God is love. Right. It's like, it's kind of a gotcha in Christian theology, right? Um, so that's where secular culture it pokes at the Achilles heel. Well, God is love, so you can't judge me, right? I'm beautiful and great the way I am. Yeah. And what I realized as a parent is, of course I love my daughter exactly as she is as a three-year-old. I wouldn't change anything about her, even if she has an accident and, and I, you know, it's a big mess in the restroom at Target or whatever. Or if she has a fit <laughs> and she's rolling around on the floor of the school. I still love her 1,000% exactly for who she is, where she's at now, but I would not want her to stay that way. I would, I, I'm hoping and yearning for the day that she can keep growing into something more and better. It doesn't mean I don't love her now, it just means that I want her to continue on the growth path. And I want her to continue on the growth path, not because I'm sitting up here with my arms folded waiting for her to pass the test of life. <laughs> I want her to grow because I want her to experience the joy of life. If she's, you know, there was a time, as you guys probably know, uh, when your kid says nothing but no, no. No. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yep. We're in that, in that phase, phase with our youngest. No. No. Yep. No. 
It's like, okay, I love you, little girl, exactly for where you're at, even when you say no, but please do not stay this way. Like, please. (laughs) (laughs) Not because not only because I will go nuts and I will lose my mind. That's irrelevant. The real reason is you won't be able to hold down a relationship. You won't be Mm -hmm. able to get a job. You won't be able to partner with a team travel the world fall in love i want you to experience this world i want you to you know see um i want you to visit chile and and mount everest and i want you to see japan and i want you to fall in love and have kids and experience all there is in this life and you won't get it if you stay as this two-year-old you, I want you to grow so that I want you to feel the joy and fullness of life. And that is why God encourages us to grow. Because wow. there's something amazing on the other side of that growth that we're <laughs> missing out. That's the heart of, yes, I love you for exactly where you're at, but keep growing, please. It, it, it's going to be amazing. And I, when I clicked in, that was only because I was a parent. Wow. Yeah. My parent, I think my dad once said that he was like, I mean, I found he's one of the few people who found teenage girls delightful. I, I don't know what's wrong with him, but no. <laughs> he was like, See, I my think husband he had, may need he to had, ask him for advice. Yeah, yeah. I think he just enjoys extremely challenging situations. <laughs> Actually, he kind of does. Um, but I, I think his heart was, you know, he, he grew up with very kind of aggressive, you know, he, they were four boys, no girls in the family and, you know, kind of tough, aggressive, macho brothers. And for him, all, you know, this girliness, the giggling, the laughter, you know, the, all of it was just so delightful to him. He just enjoyed, you know, and <laughs> like looking at it as an adult, like I, I cringe when I think of those memories, you know, personally, I'm like, oh my gosh, I was so immature. You know, how could you ever enjoy? He's like, no, I just loved seeing you the way you were, you know, and enjoying every minute of where you're at. But I will mm-hmm. admit that relating with you as an adult is so much more, <laughs> is so much more enjoyable and easier <laughs> because you come out the other, you know, it's like, it's mm-hmm. compounded, right? You know, all those experiences, but um, yeah, it was just, a, it, it was interesting. Like from my perspective, it's like, oh no, that must've been terrible for you. And he's like, no, it was, it was a joy to watch you grow up and to see you, you know, get to the next level and come to these realizations. So, yeah. I, that's, I mean, yeah, this is what was blowing my mind as a pastor, just, Wow, that you can continue to understand more and more and more and more about God through this lens of uh, parentism, right? Mm. He he is a parent, and he's going through everything a parent goes through, and he feels like a parent, and and then you can start learning about God through your own journey as a parent. That's pretty mind blowing. That I love that. Yeah, sometimes I think of like humanity. What. <laughs> What level of infancy are we still in? (laughs) (laughs) Like, if he looks at humanity collectively as a child, right? Like, what age are we at? You know, sometimes I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we're at least 12 years old. I hope we're some, I hope we hit puberty or something. No, we, I hope we've gone past the no. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Right. I mean, like, even what you were describing, Joe, is, 
um, I was talking to my dad about the same point. You know, what, what was it that appealed to him when he met, um, the movement? And it was, it was exactly what you were describing this, like, he grew up Catholic and, um, you know, it was like, you can never know the Almighty Lord because he is, even though he's our Heavenly Father, he's like the Alpha and Omega and all the way over there. And we are these lowly sinners. Like, you'll just never know him, you know, fully. And yet this concept of like, like hearing, hearing the divine principle talking about God having feelings, like grieving, you know, suffering, the, the pain and also the joy, you know, in creation and things like it was exactly those things that really attracted him to the movement. And yeah, I think that's like everything that you touched on. It's like, so, uh, it, it's what's so special about yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I guess I'm gonna be a Bible salesman one day because I, this, this, all of this is not anti-Bible. Like, oh yes. well, that's what Christians used to think, but here we got a better. No, actually, in the Bible it says, back then it, we we see things through a glass darkly, meaning we don't really understand. It's faded, but one day it will be face to face. One day it'll be clear, like looking in a mirror. So all we're saying is that time is now. We can mm-hmm. understand God clearly. So I have a question kind of going back on your spiritual journey of life. Um, you know, you, you, ta- you touched on um, really being welcomed into the music ministry. Um, and then, uh, I mean, those of us in the movement, we know that there was like an abrupt closure of that ministry and um, things came to a grinding halt. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people were deeply hurt from what happened. How did you make that transition from moving from that music ministry over to ending up kind of involved, like accidentally because stepping into this pastor <laughs> role? Um yeah, because I think because there were so many people that were deeply hurt, and rightly so, um, but what was that transition like for you in your experience? Yeah, and that's a good question because I've met so many people that have different stories right there. Like, how are you going to rebound, right? And um, mm-hmm. my rebound was to go back to focusing on career. <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> I guess that didn't, you know, there's no place here, but I did have a lot of friendships and I, and I really identified as, wow, I am totally a unificationist person. Like I, there's no doubt in my mind now, like that solidified it. Um, too bad. There's no ministry anymore, but so I was already very different. And I, and then I was, um, very fortunate to be re, uh, I, I got blessed in marriage um, to my wife, uh, of 10 years now. Ooh, um, congrats. Yeah. Thank you. So we came out of that situation together thinking, well, okay, we have a blessing to work on. We have, let's, let's, I'm just going to pursue the music career more. <laughs> mm. So, yeah. And so I, I moved down to Florida this, I'll skip through this quickly, but I moved down to Florida to st- open a music studio and then long story short, it really failed. It basically closed up. Like it, oh, wow. uh, my business partner had a mo- momentary 
total pa- mental panic break mental breakdown um i couldn't find clients and i couldn't find people to take our songs and and place our songs on people's albums like i was just getting chewed up by the music industry just just our butts handed to us lost all my money i dumped a lot of money into a studio it was failure total failure and toward the end of that failure when we moved to florida you know we just pick a neighborhood on the map like total tourist don't know anything from anything and i moved into this house and when i'm driving up to the house to see it um it's literally on the same street pretty much on the same street as the church the the south the church of the the family church of south florida wow i was like no i'm trying to get away from this no just why are they here and i wasn't even sure how they felt about me because some people could recognize me as at that stage because i had just been on this national stage so i remember for the first six months of living in florida i would drive by the church every single day because it was on the way out of the neighborhood couldn't couldn't go around it it was almost God saying, you can't escape your destiny. <laughs> but um, I drove by it, and whenever I saw people in the parking lot or, or cars in the parking lot of the church, I turned my head and ducked because I didn't want anyone to see me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know if they'll recognize me. I don't know how they feel. <sighs> One day I walk in there, and there's a second-gen band Um playing and i thought that's kind of rare like to a good second gen band with some good singers in here i'm like this is pretty cool all the way in florida what the heck so then i started attending church service to play bass for them and um and then as a bass player just there every week and then the pastorship opened up we don't have a pastor anymore and they had um a really nice, I think a wonderful sister, uh, Simone Dorsky, to pastor there for a couple of years. And she was our good friend. And so she was kind of like on the side telling me and Keishu, like, you guys should be the next pastor. And Keishu and I were like, no, we're we're not pastoral. Like, I'm not that type of person. Like, (laughs) you know, I I stay up till four in the morning. It's this is weird. I I just can't do it. And uh, long story short, um, my wife took a trip to Alaska. Don't know if you know anybody in Alaska. Um, but I think she was visiting some families up there. And uh, she had a hike on a mountain. This is classic spiritual story. Uh, she, and then she, There's always a mountain. Yeah, there's always a mountain. And she came down from the mountain. <laughs> Moses with the tablet. Yeah, Moses with the tablet. And called me at the foot of the mountain and said, Joe, I think we should do the pastorship. I said, sure. Okay. (laughs) And um, I was ready to roll with it. And and I think everyone, I think the whole community thought, this is exciting because we can't wait for Keishu to be our pastor. Joe's the guy he's the musician. He'll play the music. You know, he'll be the bass player. I was going to be the bass player. And Keishu was going to be the pastor for a little while because she was she's so qualified. I mean, she's worked at eBay and the United Nations and all these things. And she's very professional. I'm sure everyone was looking forward to that. And then (laughs) I gave a couple sermons right at the top of it. And I just had so much fun. And I was like and everybody seemed to like it. And so I just kept doing it. And then I just kind of became the pastor. Yeah. 
in case you so great yeah (laughs) so we really we really pulled a fast one on them but i was having these moments like about a year or two into it thinking god like what are you doing with my life like all of a sudden i'm like really getting into preaching and stuff and my music career just folded up on me like failure on the floor and i was really like giving god what what reverend moon might call a showdown prayer like now why are you taking the last 20 years of my effort and practice and career and dumping it down the tubes and now you're like inspiring me to be all minister guy what do you want me to do with that are you ask are you asking me to put music on the altar that's what i was wondering and i came to a place in my heart where i was i just gave it to god i said if you want me to quit music i'll quit and that was a big deal because i had done nothing but music my whole life so i told him that god's answer he said uh he said do both so then i was like oh i get it and um Shortly after that, I realized uh, there's a guy I kind of use as my role model. Uh, his name's John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement. And uh, I said, I started reading about him and I realized John Wesley wrote worship songs and he traveled the world preaching. So I was like, that's me. I'm going to go around. <laughs> I, I found, because I was kind of like confused, like, who's my role model? Who do I look up to? What What am I now? And so I decided I'll be like a John Wesley, you know. Um, I found out later that my grandfather was named Wesley because they were Methodist. So he's they 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 wow, want they so yeah. I, I maybe my grandfather's around me, um, and that and that he I didn't know this till this year, but he was a youth pastor. Uh, wow. My my grandfather, oh, wow. a very well loved youth pastor with like hundreds of anyway. So I'm like, it's in the DNA. So I realize (laughs) I'm going to be John Wesley light and I'm going to go, I'm going to go, go around and preach the word (laughs) and I'm going to write songs, but I don't want to write another crappy pop song ever again. I'm not going to write a song for some, um, for some industry purpose. I want to write songs that move people's heart and be open to feel God better. That's the whole that's my new direction. So I was ready to tell God, like, yeah, you can kill my music right now if, you, if, that, if you're really telling me to do this. But he gave me a little way out, and he was, like, very clear. John Wesley. Wow. So for all of our listeners, where can they find your music? <laughs> oh, well, I – yeah, well, see, that's a good question. I've written a bunch of worship songs. Uh, I have about – I've about I probably have an album worth of worship songs kind of ready to go. And I'm going to be releasing them on a little platform called The Living Room Ministry, um, which I just created. Um, we already have the website picked out and stuff, thelivingroomministry.com. I want that site to be like where I can put those um, messages and the songs and just put them out right there on you know, in tandem, parallel. And I think that would be really fun and really creative exercise for me. And so anyway, because you asked, I I thought that that's where it's going to be. I'm just going to put everything there. Oh, yeah, no, because I'm, I'm super excited to to hear your stuff, what what you're going to release, because um, music has always been really special for me, too, I think, in in my life. And um, because it's all about the heart, right? Like the the feeling yeah. and the experience, and um, 
one of my biggest struggles most recently, the, the moment of breakthrough came when I turned on <laughs> the top Christian hits on Apple music. There you go. You know? Yeah. And yeah. it was like, you know, and I, I love Christian music for that because it is uplifting and inspiring. And it brought me back to that, the thing that helped me break through with what I was going through was like, Oh my God. Yes. I remember that God loves me so much and I love God. Like I totally trust God. I don't trust the situation. I don't know what's going on here. You know, it's like driving me crazy, but, and, and that experience through the music is like what brought me back. And yeah, I'm, I'm really keen to hear your music. Testimonies like that really pump me up because then it gives me like a purpose. Like there's a real purpose to, to put out good, like God-centered music. Like that, that's Definitely. awesome. Yeah, there's a niche in the market too. Like I'm not as like gung-ho about Christian music because I've Maybe I just yeah I don't and have no actually so I, just so you know it, I get it I get music. that oh I love country too I love country music yeah yeah I grew up in the South I tried to resist it <laughs> but there's some really good yes. especially any Randy Travis fans out there oh, I major yeah. crush on him when Definitely. I was a little kid there was something about that voice <laughs> I've told my husband this he's aware. Um, <laughs> Um, oh man! You know, and it's he wasn't always talking about God, or you know, he he talked about relationship stuff. But there's something that's like moving, you know, in in in, in spiritual music. But there is a niche there for, um, I don't want to call it just the unificationist, you know, perspective on spirituality and music. But there's a niche there for spiritual people to write music, and like when I discovered, you know, Marcus Mumford is a Christian it helped me understand their music better, you know? Like, I was like, there's something deep here. Is it just me? Are they are they religious? And then I looked it up and was like, oh, that's why I resonate so deeply with it. Wow, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Joe, who, who are some of, um, who are some of the artists that inspire you? And um, how, I guess, what style of music are you, uh, kind of close to I guess in in how you perform um so the music that I want to write I just want to write the most I know I'm a, like a big dreamer and I shoot really high so I might be setting myself up for a massive flop but the music that I want so this is a writing trick by the way like I'll sit down and be like I don't know what to write but then there's this little exercise well what do I wish there was more of right? Hmm. Like, oh, you know what would be cool is if Coldplay found Jesus or or True Parents. <laughs> and, so, and then so I love it. Right. I love it. And then and then they wrote their best album ever. <laughs> like, like, so if that could happen. So that's I mean, I'm so ridiculous. But that's where I start like creatively. And then I'm thinking, wait a second. I can write that. So like in my mind and music that's like an anthem, like Bruce Springsteen, Coldplay, like that's what juices me up. When when you get like 80,000 people singing together. Yeah. So that's, man, it gives me the goosebumps right now. But an anthemic music, anthem music for 
thousands of people to sing. That's that's where I'm so pumped about right now. And uh, I think the other thing I'm really drawn towards is innocence and sweetness. Because somebody else asked me this question. Have you noticed that your music has changed or your, your taste in music has changed? And the answer that popped out of my mind, it was so revelatory because you know how you say it and then you th- realize it. And um, I want... I want to bring back innocence and sweetness into the world through music. Mm. There, it's just so hard to find. That's right. Um, so yeah. something about that innocence and sweetness, Coldplay, Bruce Springsteen anthem, smash it together. <laughs> and uh, it's re- so you're talking to a creative here. So you know you're gonna yeah. get some ridiculous. You're gonna <laughs> oh, get no, some ridiculousness. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's where creativity is like amazing, right? Because yeah, you, yeah. you take these like really ambitious goals. And I mean, it is the expression of the heart, right? Like, and the human experience. And I mean, like, right, recently, I've been on like a huge Lauren Daigle kick. I love yeah. her. Oh, my God. Okay, like, her voice. stuff just, it hits so deep for me when I listen, you know, Um I have a penchant for tragic music, which is my Korean side. Totally, uh. like, all the all the Korean songs that our movement has like introduced, you know, to like to mm-hmm. us and our community yeah. is like, you know, it's all the really tragic songs and longing in the heart. And oh my god, I was what what was it? Um, when InSync released "Gone," oh my god, it was over <laughs> for me. That was it. That was oh, like man. the song you know of longing and tragedy and tragic there's the beauty and like the tragedy of life you know yeah you know i i respect that and i you know those i think all the spectrums of feelings are good because i i the the door that opens the heart is is um is like a one it's like a universal door basically like the same door that opens when you feel sad is the same door that opens when you feel happy um, and and I, I actually read that from a psychologist who said that's why you'll see, for instance, people crying at, at a happy thing, like crying at weddings, right? So you're there, you're sitting in the pews, and your door, the door to your heart is opening because you want to feel all the joy and magic of that moment and the happiness for the bride and the groom and the future. But then that door is open and and the thought enters your mind of like, of of somebody that maybe grandma that that would have loved this had she lived longer right and and the people that are missing and that the people that are missing <laughs> and so that same door then you'll cry and so i feel like music opens that door and then it goes it go, you can go 3d with it you know that the door to feel god's love is that same door that music so you have to open the heart and i think music is a tool for that I want people to feel God, but how can you do that with a closed heart, right? So um, music's a tool for that, for sure. I think that's an awesome place to end, you know, music as a doorway to the heart. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> to feel I God's love. I think we have love. the title of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been awesome, Joe, and we could keep going, I think, forever. Oh, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I just want to thank you for your time and for sharing your experiences with us. And yeah, we're so grateful to have had you on. Oh, yeah. Thanks, guys. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Why I Joined. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the Divine Principle worldview, you can visit our website at www.familyfed.org.